Blog Talk Radio. And Andy Piasic on the line. I appreciate you coming on, sir. Glad to be back, L.A. Thanks for having me. Good to have you on. Uh, once again, uh, always insightful, always thought-provocative articles. Uh, uh, talk about this article and, and, and why you uh, decided to write it. There seemed to be a couple of things that I really wanted to emphasize First of all, Biden's victory, and then two months later, the victory of the two Democrats in Georgia in the two Senate seats uh, runoffs. I think a lot of it has to go back to um, the work that was done leading up to and then during that unbelievable wave of demonstrations that we saw last spring that lasted into the summer around police violence against African-Americans. You know, it was like uh, probably the biggest outpouring of people into the streets in 50 years uh, since the Vietnam War days, since the Civil Rights days. And I think it's always important to remember that power responds to pressure from below. And that's definitely what was happening with that situation where we had uh, Trump in office and then Directly after the demonstrations kind of began to slow down, we shifted into gear to get out the vote. And that meant years of work that had been done to beat back some of the voter suppression efforts. So the bottom line is that people's activism and organizing was really a big factor in why Biden won and why the two Democrats won in Georgia. Second thing is Trump, presidency was a complete disaster for the country. I don't I think most people listening to your show will likely agree with that. But we should not lose fact of the fact that the United States had very very serious problems before Trump became president and many of those problems still continue to today. And in many ways while Biden has done some surprisingly good things since he's become president he, you know, is one of the worst of the Democrats from going back to the 70s, 80s on up uh, when he was a senator. Uh, he was backing some of the worst policies and legislation of that time. So, you know, what we need to avoid and which I'm seeing a little bit of that makes me concerned is that 
people are maybe still, you know, taking a break, too much of a break, I think, uh, from the Biden victory over Trump. And we really need to get back into the streets. We need to really get back to doing the kind of work to keep the pressure on. Now, I realize that some of this has to do with the pandemic. So things have been turned down for the last 13 months or so. But um, more and more people are vaccinated, more and more things are opening up. And uh, we need to, you know, and look at last summer. I mean, that was in some ways some of the high point of the uh, highest numbers of sickness and death. And people were out in the streets because they knew they had to be. We had to respond to this unbelievable continuation of this murder of black people, which just looking through what's happening in the last week or so, it still is going on. Another one in Minnesota, a guy pulled over, an army, uh, active army or duty guy pulled over in Virginia. Luckily, he was not injured as far as I know, but it was a completely unbelievably racist thing. And then the last point um, was to underscore the fact that we have these very dangerous white supremacist organizations, some of which are even what I would call fascist that have been building for years, really took off and gained some of the spotlight during the last four years. And they're definitely not going away. Uh, the chances are, unfortunately, that they're probably going to grow larger. And the only medicine to preventing them from growing larger is that we need to do our work better. Uh, we need to branch out into places where we maybe aren't doing as much. And we need to go right to where they are able to draw in um, new members and, and kind of go at it organizationally with them. Um, the big concern is <clears throat> that this could become some kind of a big mass popular movement where you would have more and more working class and poor whites joining in with this. Um, right now, to this point, we're talking about mostly well-to-do kind of professionals, people in different occupations that are uh, kind of above average income and wealth levels. The vast majority of people in this country, including whites, are working class. Not as many of them have been drawn to that yet. Some have, unfortunately. But we need to really kind of nip it in the bud before it gets anywhere any any bigger than it already is. What do you say to people who have um, uh, I'm looking for the word protest burnout, if you will, um, that, you know, yes, uh, the evil one is gone. But yes, as you, you pointed out, Biden may be the the least liberal, if you will, uh, Democrat in some time. Um, but we've made strides and, and the people have spoken and, and there are people woke as they like to say it and people need to kind of heal at this point. What do you say to them? Well, there's a couple things. First of all, people should contribute at whatever level they can. I think the, the recipe for problems is when people go at a frantic pace for a little while and then they have no choice but to fall back and kind of cut themselves off for a couple months because they just did too much people need to it needs to be balanced you contribute what you can and 
in some cases, people have family issues, they have personal issues, they have jobs, they have all kinds of stuff that also has to be tended to. So during those times, uh, it's expected that you would be able to pull back, but not stop completely. And if people do pull back, they can always, if they can afford it, contribute money, or they can share information about meetings or this or that or whatever about organizations um, with other folks, even with the understanding that I'm not going to be able to make it this week, but you can always go. And the other thing, though, too, is we have to pay more attention to this, um, you know, kind of looking out for each other. We need to be aware of people who maybe are pushing themselves a little too much. In some cases, that's just the way some people are wound, and they can do it, and they can do it for years, and uh, they're pretty much okay. In cases where, you know, people begin to act erratically or it becomes clear that they're not paying attention to their health or to their families, we just have to be more conscious of that. But... um, I think that comes mostly through people knowing each other better, and it also comes from we have to make it a higher priority to be aware of these kinds of things. But in some ways, you know, I mean, we don't really, I don't know, uh, we don't, I don't think we really have the luxury too much of getting, um, well, you know, I need to take time off from this. Uh, The situation's not as bad as it was a year ago, that kind of attitude. People can contribute a little bit here, a little bit there. It can be less at times, and it can be more at times. But um, I think, you know, the better attention people pay to pacing themselves and to seeking support when they need it will help to prevent, I think, some of the stuff that you're describing. If you're just joining us, we'll talk with uh, Andy Piasek here on the Vassar News Radio Show on the Vassar News Radio Network and WCOM and uh chapel hill in carborough north carolina Andy, i i was having a conversation with someone who i i you know i shared your article with with people who definitely are uh like-minded if you will um but then those who i knew would challenge it because i want them to see and read how how easy this is just to understand uh, oppression and and white privilege and 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 the things that go with it the the anger the the hate the the death that goes with it. Not to say that your article co- covered all of that, but it it it, it definitely is thought provoking. And you know, we got into I got into a conversation with one uh, guy who's, who lives in Michigan, and he talked about how. You know, it's um, this uh, reverse affirmative actions taking place uh, and black people have uh, come a long way. And he talked about how it's a case for the black uh, young a black woman that sued the University of Michigan because she felt that um, they discriminated against her in terms of um, enrollment, uh, even getting in. And Michigan fought back um, saying that. Because she said the population of state of Michigan doesn't reflect what the the body of of students in Michigan and they they beg to differ and they said that the population does show um, the two percent or whatever it is in Michigan that reflects into 
their student body. Um, but I, I bring that up because anybody could throw stats out. And you can't change a person's heart. But right is right and wrong is wrong. So I wonder how far any of the, the, the righteousness that needs to take place will go if people don't want to change their hearts. It, 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 the, the more danger I get, the, the proud boys and the white supremacists out there trying to bang heads and kill people and they want to kill their own if they go against their country, as they call, call it, and, and all of those things. But even the more dangerous ones are the ones that don't believe is any is not any inequality in this country, and and not only that, want to to hold on to their power, their money, and all the things that go with it. What's your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts on it are that there's a lot of different people that we can try to reach. There are people who will certainly not, who will absolutely just not. Listen, nothing that we can say will change anything. That doesn't mean that we should stop saying it, because out there somewhere we have to believe, and I do believe, that there are people who read the stuff or listen to shows like yours who do begin maybe incrementally over a period of time to change their minds about some things. But I think the the key thing, and this is the, the kind of the latter part of the article, um, in some ways it was addressed a lot to white activists and organizers because when you're in a situation in a country that still is largely segregated, it's it's primarily going to fall on white activists and white radicals to begin to get as much as possible white working class people and white people in general to support black people's demands for equality and democracy. And that takes living in those communities. If you're already from the community, then you're already there, but it may be you're relocating, whatever. You have to be somewhere for a longer period of time um, where people know that you're part of this and that you can be there trying to educate people, trying to participate in the things that matter to them um, if people's lives are falling apart or their jobs are hard, organizers need to be addressing those issues. And again, now I'm talking uh, uh, mostly now about white people's lives falling apart and white organizers coming in to say, look, you're not working two and a half jobs because of black people. You're working two and a half jobs because the rubber factory that you could have been working in is no longer here, and you could have made a decent living working just 40 hours a week. Um, that's like a symptom of the economic system. It has nothing to do with immigrants or black people or gays or anybody taking stuff away from you. Um, so in workplaces, in churches, in community clubs, in uh, neighborhoods, you know, we need to work with people both recognizing and acknowledging the pain of their lives, but also trying to do our work in such a way that we shed light on the fact that this is a economic system problem that can be fixed because there's no reason why we can't change the economic system or fix it or, you know, enact new laws or have new ways of doing things 
And um, some of this work is happening already. Um, it, it's not as visible as it should be, and there's not as much of it as there should be. But I think really being among people with these problems, and then obviously if it gets to a point where somebody's attitude is, no, screw you, you know, I got my gun and I'm going to join the local Proud Boys or the local Klan chapter and the hell with you, then, you know, we need to be out when they're out in the streets protesting and trying to prevent them from doing whatever it is they're going to do. Because at some point, you know, you try to organize and you try to reason with people, but then if they're out there inflicting violence or doing the kind of stuff that we saw in Washington back on January 6th or Charlottesville uh, back in 2017, it, it, it needs to be resisted. You, you know, you're not going to try to oh, convince people, oh, you know, uh, you know, well, give up your clan membership or give up your whatever your membership. We just need to be very clear to them that if you show out in public, we will be there and we will mobilize as many people as we can to try to counteract whatever you're going to do. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that one of the things, though, that gets lost um, in in this struggle, and you're, you're right, you can't convince everybody. It's, it's no way you can do that, um, including black people who I know that uh, say, you know, look, I mean, black people could be idiots. Black people could be this. Black people could be that. And that's Captain Obvious. Of course, black people can be uh, bad apples and, 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 and even in some cases, you know, bring some things under yourself. Nobody's saying it's not any crime or anything. But how much does that hurt when you're when the oppressed believes in the ways of the oppressor? Well, I think there's different categories of people who fall into that group. First would be, you know, kind of well-to-do people who are openly declaring themselves to be part of the Republican Party. They served in Republican administrations at a state level, at the Trump level, um, we saw them. We know who some of them are. And I think even this guy Kemp in Georgia, when he held his first press conference after Major League Baseball announced a thing about the All-Star game being moved to Denver, it was a group of, I don't know, 25 people. I saw maybe four black faces in that crowd. So those are people who are ideologically committed to, for whatever reason, and it is often very hard to try to figure out, what the reason is, they are on board with whatever the Republican Party is doing. And I think it's important to emphasize that there really seems to be very little separation anymore between these rights, white supremacist groups and the Republican Party. Some of these new people who are getting elected to office come pretty much out of the white supremacist movement. And it seems like Whatever lip service some of them might play pay to, uh, oh, you know, criticizing this or criticizing that, the fact is that they're almost uh, kind of one part. They're they're part of a united front almost. Um, as far as other African Americans who, well, you know, 
I don't want to get involved. This is, the things aren't that bad. Trump had, did some good things, and I didn't really vote for him, but whatever. I think it's more or less the same thing. I mean, you just kind of start with reality, start with what's happening in the society, start with the fact that people's living standards are falling. That's the majority of the people of the, all races in the country. Start with the fact that there's still this vast gulf between wealth that's owned by the average white person or white family compared to the average black person or black family. That's not something that can really just be waved aside. And I agree with you. You can get lost. People have their alternative facts. If you say something, it doesn't really matter how true it is. If they don't agree with it, they just will walk away and say you're wrong. But I think intuitively people who have any kind of interest in being a part of something positive will recognize um, some truth in what you're saying. And the key thing is to try to activate people, um, activate people around whatever it is that concerns them where they live and lend support to it. Um, and only in those cases where it's some kind of destructive, negative thing would we sort of say, no, you can't really, you know, that doesn't make sense. We're not going to be a part of that. Well, how about this as an alternative? But um, so I would separate out people who are ideologues who have signed on for whatever reason to some of these really incredibly reactionary stuff that's going on and other people who are, you know, maybe just um, drifting without good moorings because good information is hard to find. And that's the kind of role that an organizer and an activist and an organization with some roots and with some uh, experience can provide. As, and, and, and you're right. Uh, I think that um, people have to want to know what the truth is. And people will look for um, reasons not to believe either for their their own selfish reasons or because, uh, again, the ideology or, or anything along along those lines to to support. Um, and I, I think if you can just finally comment on haves and have nots, it goes back to an article you wrote, you know, when you, you, you talk about different cities and, 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 you know, white folks that are privileged that have the opportunity to live in the Fairfields and other places like that, rather than, you know, being born black and being born into poverty or being uh, born into situations where um, there are, um, obstacles and challenges in your way, just, I mean, as soon as you're born, that we're always sort of boxed into places where they want us to be. May, and I may say my hometown of New Haven. Um, uh, so I, I, I think that it, knowledge is definitely power. Maybe that's a route that blacks and whites on the same side of righteousness and other races can point out that, you know, um, based on the color of your skin, cer certainly with privilege, like if you're a white person born with money, then it, it, you definitely have that step. But the opportunities based on your skin, even if you're not born with a silver spoon, 
are greatly more uh, increased if you if you're the same starting from the same point of view in terms of your economics if you're a black person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the the problem of white privilege and white supremacy, you know, it's so deep and it's there's so many layers to it. I think, and I would include most white radicals and activists in this, don't even realize the kind of privileges that they also have. Even people who study it and are aware of it and try to confront it in some way. So, yeah, I mean, I think we, we talked uh, earlier about still the staggering gap between how much wealth the average black person has uh, is so much lower by an incredible amount. I don't have the numbers right in front of me. Anybody can look that up pretty easily. And just, I mean, and this goes back to the thing that I was hinting at earlier about Biden. You know, this whole move that started 45 years ago or 40 years ago, the prison industrial complex was really, partly the intention was to get a lot of people off the street who the power structure felt were potentially dangerous, mainly young African-American men and to some extent women and to some extent Latinos. But I think a lot of it goes back to the success or the effort that was made by the Black Panther Party to organize the brother on the street and to provide them with some kind of structure and some kind of direction and education like what you were describing. And so by the late 70s, when the Black Panther Party was in decline and, um, you know, the powers that be said, look, I mean, there were other reasons for it, but it was also a recognition that in some ways the people who are beaten down the most in the society are potentially the biggest threat to challenging the system. Um, and so, I don't know, I'm kind of drifting, I think, away from what your original question was, but uh, I think... No, you, you, you're making a point, and, and, and by the way, to, to, to that point, is, is when you, you talk about, um, you know, some being ignorant to the fact of of that uh and 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 where joe biden is in terms of his where you know where he stands politically um you know he he voted for those crime bills he voted for a lot of those things um and people forget that so we have to stay woke we have to say okay yeah if you're gonna go with you're gonna vote for the demon or the devil and i hate to put it in those terms you might want to pick the lesser of two evils but that doesn't mean the lesser of two evils is has the best possible agenda for those like us who are fighting uh, for the good. Well, and the, 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 the sliver of positive and why it was absolutely essential to get Trump out is that because of who makes up the Democratic Party constituency, they do have to pay attention to people like you, people like me, people like those who were out demonstrating last year, people in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, who were out demonstrating last night and are probably back out there now, because that's who basically votes year in and year out, at least, 
you know, the, the parents of those people or the older generations of those people. And they can't simply look, the Republican Party knows who their base is. And it doesn't include black people. It doesn't include basically uh, hardly any people of color. They may be able to dupe some poor and working class whites into supporting their agenda. But basically, they're speaking to the kind of people who were out in Washington on January 6th. That now has become their base. So when you have a Trump or any other Republican, Kemp, whoever it might be, and you can see all the backward, terrible, reactionary stuff that they're doing at the state level now, it makes Sorry. the point more clear. They have absolutely no regard whatsoever. In fact, they're almost stating as loudly as you can, we are your enemy, and we are acting in ways to protect ourselves and to exclude you. Um, so I think it goes back. I keep making this point. Uh, maybe people get tired of it, but it's really the only way. We need organizations and we need skilled people. We need new people to come along and learn skills and bring their energy to building multiracial and in some cases, uh, not, you know, race specific organizations that will continue to put pressure on on all these issues, police violence, you know, guaranteed minimum income for every single person in the country, Green New Deal, we need to rehaul the economy, all this kind of stuff. None of that is really going to get accomplished without um, doing the kind of things that we were doing last spring and last summer, and which through time immemorial, whether it's the civil rights movement, whether it's the anti-war movement of the 60s, whether it's uh, uh, healthcare workers, you know, pushing for major changes in the healthcare system, all that stuff can be accomplished and some of it can be changed for the better, even though it may not be our ultimate uh, blueprint with Democrats like Biden in power. But it only happens when you have people pushing hard, lots of people. I mean, you know, ultimately we need millions of people pushing from below. This is what we want. And considering all the different alternatives like, you know, uh, civil disobedience and all this other kind of stuff in order to make it happen. Yeah, and uh, the sad thing is that as we speak and as, like you said, you and I and others alike that fight in the different kind of ways, which I, I thought was a great point, you don't have to take it to the streets to be a part of, of the movement. Uh, as we fight, we still have these incidents. We still have um, the Mitch McConnells. We still have army, active army members getting pepper sprayed by cops in his uniform. Yeah. Cops telling you if you make a big deal out of it, we're gonna throw the book at you. The guy said he don't want to get out of the car because he's scared. Cops said you 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 should be. I mean stuff like that. Like it, yeah. it's 2021. Like it, it's it never seems to end. So it's almost like the more things change, the more they stay the same. As as much as we punch like boxers, and they go down, they keep getting back up. Like we and that's why I asked you in the beginning about exhaustion. Like, when are we going to go? I mean, I'm glad we don't want to give up. Um, but, pe but, but sometimes the enemy will wait you out. 
and we as black people are are notorious for having that happen. Well, they're black. They, they'll protest. They might burn some stuff down and yell and scream and get angry and cry, but eventually it'll die down. They'll go away. And I think um, black people specifically can't be tired. You know, it, it just, it goes on and on. And I don't mean to get in my soapbox with you, Andy, but well, no, you know, that, you understand what I'm saying. Well, and that's all the more reason why expanding our forces means that if I trip and fall or if you get tired and you need to sit down, then you pass the baton to 30 other people who are coming along, who have energy. Maybe they're younger. I mean, I'm 64, so most of these folks now out there are younger than I am. But whatever, you know, whether you're young, old, tired, sit down and rest and then get up when you're ready to resume. And for some people, yeah, maybe they need a longer rest. I'm not trying to berate anybody into, like, uh, you know, you need to get back out there. You need to get back out there. You need to keep going at full speed. It's just more that um, our forces are small still. And a lot of the people who come out for some of these actions, if we don't have solid organizations in place where people can join and come and feel welcome and feel like, something's being accomplished and all that kind of stuff, then they'll drift away. But if we have ways to keep them in all kinds of different outlets for them to express their vision, you know, as long as it's compatible with the overall vision, then it's more likely that they're going to stay. And it's more likely that people who, um, maybe can't participate or, are burned out can participate at another level i mean i was concerned this whole last year and maybe this is one reason why i've been doing more and more writing i didn't really want to be out i mean i went to a lot of the demonstrations but in terms of meetings or being in places with lots of other people uh it wasn't it wasn't good sense for this last year and for other people that may continue to be the case even when sort of the worst of the pandemic is behind us they can't travel that well, whatever. Um, but everybody, I think, has some way that they can contribute. And um, we have to be conscious of that. You know, the, the, the most experienced people usually are. They're usually aware of the fact that people who came for a while stop coming and why, and they try to find out. But um, I think that's why the urgency of... <clears throat> Finding some kind of basic platform that, okay, it may not have every single thing thought out to the end that I would want to see, but understanding that a united platform that's maybe a little more general and that it leaves a couple things out or we don't have to have everything in the kitchen sink thrown into our preamble, start with where people are and what they can unite around. And that's how you get more and more people involved. And then as people are involved, if the idea of, well, how about if we had a socialist economy instead of a capitalist one, what would that look like? Maybe more people might come to agree that's, that's a good idea. Maybe not. Maybe we rely more on ourselves to build farms or gardens or community gardens or alternative schools or whatever it might be all that can come up at some point 
But if you start at some basic thing like, you know, we need to make sure that the police cannot do this kind of stuff anymore and we will be out there in large numbers any time that it happens. If that's your starting point, then you can work into all these other things in over time. Um, but the immediate basic concerns are the ones that we should focus on and then the more complex ones we can get into as people get to know each other, as they've gotten to work together in a certain uh, setting over a period of months, years, whatever it might be. Amen to that. Amen to that. Uh, Andy, before you go, let folks know how they can follow you and, and, and read all your great articles, sir. Well, I'm not real big on social media. I just always pump uh, the websites that publish my work and they publish other great work. Counterpunch.org. They post new material Monday through Friday. And Znet, that's the letter Z-N-E-T, they publish new material seven days a week. So there's always good analysis there, and it often leads people to organizations of the kind that I'm talking about that they can hook into or network with or reach out to or whatever they want to do. Andy, I appreciate you, man. Keep fighting the fight. We we need you on, on, on the team, uh, and I appreciate all that you do, sir. We'll talk soon. Thank you very much, Ellie. Thank you. Have Andy Piasek, uh, always good to have him on. Uh, he is a an activist and, and great article, uh, a great uh, writer, writing uh, many articles that are thought provocating and, and talk about many of the issues uh, that uh, not just affect uh, black people, but those who are poor and marginalized and uh, misrepresented um, and, and impoverished. All of the ills of this country, um, he definitely talks about. Uh, 646-929-0130, the number to get in touch with us. It's the Bassett News Radio Show. Stay tuned. to another edition of the Bachelor News Radio Show. We thank you for joining us wherever you are. You could have done anything else and could be doing anything else, and yet you've decided to check in with us. 646-929-0130, the number to get in touch with us right now to get into any discussion we may have. And we got a lot. We're going to get to it. Uh, if you have any questions, you can hit us there. Um, and, of course, um, you all always can reach out to us by email at labachelor40 at gmail.com or um, certainly you can hit us up at Pad Nation on Facebook. We're live on Facebook now and um, or LA Bachelor as well. Twitter Pad, Pad Nation too. I want to bring in my first guest. He is a licensed relationship therapist. Uh, of course, uh, he has been featured on Cosmopolitan uh, 51 First Dates podcast and the DBS podcast. Good to have him on uh, for the first time. He is Trey H. Hennis. And Trey, listen, I appreciate you. You, you said don't call you doctor, so I, I may call you Dr. Trey just to play on it a little bit. Um, but nevertheless, we, pre we appreciate 
appreciate you coming on this evening, sir. Fantastic. Absolute pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure. So I, I wanted to bring you on. We, we're doing a series, um, and it, we can't get it all in one show, about black love. Black love in terms of two people, a spouse, you know, um, uh, male, female, otherwise, and, and certainly um, love of self, which could hinder a lot of relationships, I would think, in your profession you see. But in, in terms of the origin of the issues that black men and women have in this society, and I, I got all the stats. We could throw that around all day, you know, marriage and percentages and interracial, day, all that stuff is in front of me. But I want to go to you and ask you what, in your professional opinion, whether it be some of your patients or just in your studies, is sort of the, the core, the origin, the decline, not only just of marriages, but this, this relationship we call uh, between black men and black women. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think there are a few different components. You know, if we talk about the breakdown of marriage, you know, the relationship between black men and black women, I think one of the first things you have to take into consideration is technology. You know, the age of information, uh, has essentially changed dating, marriage, the ideologies of marriage, the paradigms of long-term commitment and monogamy. It's just completely changed the game. In addition to that, the Western world, every year we become more progressive with the paradigms of what monogamy means. You know, we've seen the rise of polyamory, and that is when you and your partner decide to be in relationships with other people while still being in relationships with each other. We've seen the rise of internet dating and app dating where you can essentially date with anonymity and no one really knows that you're married or, or in a relationship. Um, and we've seen the acceptance of essentially uh, marrying who you want to marry. The good thing is that there's still a large percentage of, uh, you know, 85% of black men are still marrying black wives. 9% uh, have a white spouse, 3% have Hispanic, and uh, the other 3% have other. I don't really know what that means. Um, but essentially, <laughs> technology is, is slowly tearing apart, you know, institutionalized monogamy and marriage that we've seen for, for decades and centuries. Well, where does that come from, though? I mean, let's, let's go back to the marriage part. As you, you mentioned, um, the decline, the numbers in marriage, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you know, only 29% of uh, African-Americans are married. And that's down from four years ago. Um, so you talked about, you know, online dating and those things and, and being able to be uh, sort of secret in what you're, you're doing. But there has to be an origin of why you're doing it. Why, if you're married, that you decide as a black man and woman that you decide that you want to step out of your marriage and and start another relationship with another man or another woman um, or whatever. Um, is the core value gone from from black marriages, from black people in terms of when they come together in a relationship? Are our are, are core values going away? And if so, is it because of the technology, the online dating, the, the, the wanting to take a, a bite from that other apple? Yeah, you know, I, I think time and time, so there's an old saying, right, where you are only as good, a man is only as faithful as his options. No, I'm not saying that's a fact. I'm not saying that I stand by that, but that's an old saying, right? And now, you see, back in the day, 
you know, you could meet someone at a gas station, you can meet someone at an apartment complex, you could meet someone at work, you can meet someone at school, you know, and those were basically the forms of meeting people. So your options were limited. And the person that you stuck with, you felt like was the best you could get because you really hadn't seen that many options. Now you could literally be sitting through the comfort of your own home and you can have a single bar in the comfort of your own hand and you can swipe and find someone that if there wasn't this technology, you never would have seen before. And unfortunately, what that gives people is a paradox of not getting married because they're waiting for the next best option. Because they know that if it doesn't work out with the person that perhaps they should have been destined to marry, that there's always going to be another option. There's always going to be a next best thing because all you have to do is pick up your phone and swipe and swipe and swipe until you have that match. So when people traditionally used to commit, when people traditionally used to work through relationships, used to talk through problems, used to be master communicators, that's just not happening anymore because people don't need to do that. Because people know that if I have a big argument with the person that I'm in a relationship right now, maybe I can find someone who doesn't argue like that. But what they don't realize is that when you leave a relationship because you guys can't get through conflict resolution, the next person that perhaps doesn't have that fault that the previous person has, they're going to have another fault that you don't like. And that next person is going to have another issue that you don't like. And what's happening right now is, Millennials, particularly people who are at the ages between 25 to 35 right now, is they're going through this cycle. They're getting in relationships that last from three to four months, and what they're doing is any kind of conflict or any issues or if there's a small thing that they don't particularly like, they're out of it. And there was a, a study that was released by the Pew Research Center that essentially said 25% of millennials are likely never to ever be married. And that's because of that one paradox of online dating. Well, if you're just joining us, we're, we're talking with Trey H. Hennis. Uh, he's a licensed re relationship ther therapist, a black, black man himself. Uh, full disclosure, uh, we try to reach out to um, kind of balance the scale with a female um, a black therapist, and um, we were unable to do that. Uh, but will continue as this, these shows go on. We'll, we'll certainly will have uh, that situation. You know, um, Trey, you, one of the things, uh, again, going back to the core, and you, you like, I like the term back in the day that you use. You know, back in the day, yes, uh, it, it seems, though, our grandparents and, and their parents uh, worked things out. Um, there was a lot more emphasis Certainly, you can even look at the numbers there, um, emphasis on spirituality, um, that it was biblical that you stay married, um, not just for the sake of your soul, but the sake of your kids. We'll get to that in a, a second. But it was biblical and spiritual to stay together. Um, and some experts and some uh, sort of articles to say that black men and black women are going in opposite directions and at that aspect that um i've i've seen that you know a lot of black women if they aren't dating hitting that button on the phone um they're holding out if you will quote unquote um for that godly man and to a lesser percentage and i'm not trying to kill either side to a lesser percentage maybe not so much with black men so they don't stay in these relationships. They get 
divorce because they want to have that core values. We can get into if somebody, you know, infidelity and all that kind of stuff. But do you do you buy into that? Have you researched that? Have you had um, any of your your patients or clients deal with that of, uh, about you know the spiritual moral side of things have been part of the disconnect of the black family. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting you say that in, in the black community, traditionally, we're, we're very religious, you know, we're very Christian, and I think that there is a disconnect between the modern black male and the modern black women. You know, right now, we're living in an age where, you know, black women are, and I don't want to generalize, but in the kind of couples that I've spoken to, the single people that I've spoken to for relationship advice, you know, oftentimes the black woman that, you know, they're coming to me saying that a lot of men they're dating aren't necessarily God-fearing. Some of them don't even believe in God. And again, I'm not saying that's all of them, but that, that right. seems to be the big disconnect right there. In addition to that, what we're seeing is that we are kind of in a weird world right now where we want to be progressive. We want to talk about equality and stuff like that. But, you know, a lot of people want it both ways. And by that, I mean, they want to have a traditional role. They want to have a traditional marriage where the man is leading the way, the man is paying the majority of the bills, you know, the man is the patriarch of the house. But at the same time, you know, they want it where it's equality in the sense that, okay, a man has to be an alpha, he has to lead the way, he has to, you know, pay a majority of the bills, but they also want it where, you know, he's essentially doing what he can to make sure that she's happy, he's looking after the kids, he's you know, changing diapers as well. He's preparing meals as well. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, I buy into any particular gender role. But what I'm saying is a lot of people feel like they can have it both ways. And if you want a traditional God-fearing marriage, you can't have it both ways. That's just not the reality of modern relationships right now because the world is telling you one thing, right? You should do this. You should look at your career first, you know, don't ever let a woman tell you what to do. Don't ever let a man tell you what to do. But then traditions are telling you the complete opposite. And, you know, no man can mm. serve two masters, right? That, and that's uh, certainly out of, uh, out of the good book. Um, you know, uh, it, w with that being said, I, I had a conversation with someone the other day, you know, having it both ways, wanting, uh, you know, a man to be um, sensitive uh, to a woman's needs, being, you know, allowing them to be a damsel, you know, being a polite, opening the doors, paying for dinner, things of that nature leading up, you know, if you're dating leading up to a uh, long-term and a marriage, which is, could be two different things. Um, and, and some women sort of buck about that. So how, how do, how do you merge the two? I mean, is there any, possibility of the understanding there because you know some people think that if if two sides are sort of have these uh traditions and even i would say preconceived notions then you lose out you might have missed the the greatest man you would have would have been your partner or the the greatest woman that would have been your your wife forever because of the mixture, and, and I guess what I'm saying is that uh, uh, are, are the people going to listen to what society says and let that be um, the way they lead their relationships, or are they going to go to traditional marriage and relationships? 
Exactly. So, I mean, you know, and, and we always refer to this, right? Back in the day, the, the general consensus was, you know, if, if there's a man who's, you know, making a bulk of the money and, you know, the woman is at home looking after the kids, the role was always, you know, the man would make the money, put food on the table, you know, take care of the family, and that was his role, right? And then the woman's role was, hey, you know, I'll take care of the kids, you know what I mean? Like, I'll take care of the house, blah, 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 blah. And I'm not saying, again, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that this is, you know, anything that I stand by. I stand by an individualist, um, an individual approach between you and your spouse, but I'm going to get into that in a second. But what what we're seeing now is that, you know, the trade-offs that, that people want aren't matching, and they don't usually discuss it until they're a couple of dates in. Sometimes they're, they're even in a relationship. So uh, both parties, you know, men want it where, and I wouldn't say all men, but some men want it where, you know, they can be their provider and, and they can have, they can take care of their woman, and, you know, they want something in return, uh, but they're not getting it. And then some women, they feel to themselves, okay, well, you know, so long as you take care of me, I'll take care of you. And a lot of men aren't taking care of them because they feel like, okay, well, you know, if you want equality, then you're going to pay for your half. You're going to pay for your meal. You know what I mean? Like if, if you truly want equality, then, you know, you can't have it both ways. You know, I'm not going to take care of you if you want to be, you know, if you want to have that sense of equality in the relationship. And what I think needs to happen, and, and this is what for me is, you know, the first couple of dates, you two just have an honest conversation. You know, you look at your woman in the eye and say, hey, what do you think is good for you in a relationship? What works for you? And as a man, you say, hey, this is what works for me in a relationship. I'll give an example, okay? For me, you know, um, I believe in equality and all that stuff. And I think that, you know, relationships should really be what you two decide. But I also like a woman who embraces the feminine i don't really typically i'm not attracted to masculine women right that's a preference that i have i'm always going to you know let the person that i'm trying to be in a relationship know right so she and i know that we're on the same page and if you're a woman you should say hey you know i'm looking for a god-fearing man i'm looking for a masculine man i'm looking for an alpha man and you be very clear what you want because that way there could be no disputation there can't be a situation where the guy said oh but I didn't know you wanted that because you never communicated it from the get-go. Everything needs to happen from the first three dates in regards to communication. It's, it's funny you, you brought that up, um, Dr. Trey, because when you, uh, you have situations where um, people are dating, there is no, it seems, right, no, no real honesty. It's almost like, I used to say years ago, um, you know, when you're hungry, everything tastes good. So sometimes it seems, Doc, you know better than I do, that um, it seems as though black men and women tend to try to force relationships that are not there. You can't put a square, a square in a circle based on whatever they want, whether they're trying to, whether the woman's trying to, um, make the man that they just met into what they want it to be or perceive and the opposite. Like they, you know, you know, after a few dates, right, that is probably sometimes after a conversation that's probably not going to be a good mix. So why, what is the reason behind that? Is that insecurity? Is that, you know, because people feel lonely? Why do they try to force relationships that are really not there? 
You know, especially now with, you know, the the civil rights movement that we're, we're almost reigniting in regards to talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. I think a lot of black men and black women feel like, look, you know, we're going through an important movement right now. And I, I want to be with, you know, a brother or a sister that's, you know, going to help me raise kids so we can protect them and, and help them understand what it truly means to to be black and, and proud, right? But, you know, it's it's very steeper among blacks right now. I, I mean, I remember reading an article that said that in the 1960s, you know, 74% of whites were married, and that rate dropped to 56% in 2008. And, and when I think about that, that's a huge, huge drop. But what's interesting is that in comparison to blacks, in 1960, 61% of blacks were married. Okay, In 2008, it's only 32%. Black people are getting divorced more often and remarry less frequently than uh, Caucasian people right now, which is nuts when you think about it. Um, and, and this is something that, you know, whenever I try and counsel a couple, you know, I let them know how imperative it is, imperative it is that they survive in this modern dating world and relationship world and, and marriage world right now because, you know, things are slowly falling apart and we need to stick together if we're going to be in a situation where we can progress as a people. Uh, you know, um, Doc, and I, I got a question that came in, and I want to remind people that you can get online and ask questions at 646-929-0130. Um, you can also hit us up in the chat room uh, online if you're listening online. Uh, you can hit us up with your questions and comments in the chat room as well. Email us, labachelor 40 at gmail.com, and hit us up on Facebook at Pad Nation or Twitter at Pad Nation, too, if you have uh, a question. So there's all kinds of ways to get to uh, Dr. Trey and then ask some, some questions. Doc, when you, when you mention all of that, um, and it, it goes to um, – we I asked about, you know, what are the reasons why they – they do what they do in terms of trying to force relationships. One of the the stats and one of the things that I think people don't, black people don't really realize is that, and it goes back to the Monaghan letters back, you know, in 1962, um, that if we already know, is Captain Obvious is, you know, statistically Kids grow up better when there's a mother and father in in the household, married. They don't really go into just living together, but mother and father there in the household. They they do generally better in all phases of their life for the most part. Um, and if that doesn't happen, you know, the numbers go down. Single moms, you know, no, no men in the household. We get into incarceration and why they're not there and things of that nature. But it, the kids get affected. So it's almost it's it's what's worse for children at least two parents that stay together knowing they should not be together they probably shouldn't even gotten together in the first place for the sake of the kids and then you know kids are smart they see things they know things and they absorb things so they see the the tension if there's tension there or parents that get divorced um, and those kids have to deal with, you know, the separation. You're staying with mom sometimes, you're staying with dad sometimes. Maybe dad's not there all the time. Maybe mom 
gave up her right, whatever the case may be. What's worse? I mean, because ultimately um, the breakdown of the family has affected the kids and, and kids learn, you know, from those surroundings and those adults that are around them, good or bad. I concur with you fully. I, I think it's it's definitely difficult because there is that stigma of, you know, having the paradigm of single moms because, you know, black men, we still have a significantly higher incarceration rate, right? And that leaves, you know, uh, a lot of uh, boys or, or girls motherless, uh, fatherless, and it's difficult for them to kind of want to get married because that's not necessarily something that they grew up with. And when I say this, you know, this isn't me necessarily victim shaming or anything like that. But you could imagine that, you know, in the 70s and 60s when there weren't any video cameras to film the atrocities that some police officers had done. Or, you know, when Bill Clinton, you know, had that act where even if you had some weed, essentially you could be locked up for five to six years, right? You know, there's generations that are still trying to recover from that. You know, generations that didn't see their father around because he was locked up for for blatant racism or racial profiling. And, and that is suffering that, pe- you know, people in my generation, you know, we're suffering by the effects of that right now because some of us didn't grow up with a traditional family. So it's hard for us to want that. I also think when you talk about, you know, characteristics and situations why black men and black women are, are getting married less, I think expectations are, are very, very high for both parties. But I want to focus specifically on on women's preferences you know black men a lot of them and the black men that i've spoken to have have felt like they have an increasing amount of pressure and that they fall very short of a woman's preference you know for example i had uh, a guy i was talking to about two months ago who had recently broken up with his girlfriend and he wanted me to to help him find the day you know he wanted me to to get an online dating profile. So I I did his online dating profile for him. I helped him with his bio. And he said to me, he said, you know, it's kind of crazy out there. You know, women want you to have, you know, an amazing body, a a six-figure job. They want you to be empathetic, but they want you to be alpha. You know, they don't want you to be trying too hard, but they want you to be trying hard. They want to be taken out. They want someone to raise a family. They don't want you to have any kids. They don't want you to have any debt. They don't want you. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And again, you know, I'm not saying that this is just separate to black women, but I don't date, you know, men, so I wouldn't really be able to talk from a woman's perspective. Um, But, you know, they they have very, very high aspirations, which isn't a bad thing. But I'll give an example, right? When black women were asked uh, how important it is that they have a good husband or a partner to provide a good income, two-thirds of black women said that it was very, very important compared to 32% of white women. And then roughly 55% of black women said that it was very important for a husband or partner to be well-educated compared to 28% of white women. So what that's saying is that um, a lot of black women are saying that, look, you know, 55% of them to be specific are saying, look, you know, you're not really going to get an opportunity if you're not highly educated, which I think is drastically unfair because, not everyone is afforded the privilege of being highly educated. I think, you know, some of the best employees have worked for me who have just had high school diplomas, and quite frankly, they've worked harder than most people who have university degrees. And, and that's a stigma that, that needs to die. 
And then half of the black women said that financial stability should be an important precondition for marriage. But only a quarter of white women felt that way. Now, when I say this, I'm not saying that, you know, Caucasian women are better than black women. What I am saying is that black women have very, very high expectations for black men. I don't necessarily think this is a bad thing, but I do think that there is a portion of black men who don't fulfill that criteria who feel like they're losing out and feel like it's not even a battle that I want to fight because there's no way I can possibly win right now. Wow. You know, it's, 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 I'm, I'm glad you, you said that Uh, again. um, I'm a a member of a few different groups, real real dads and some, some stuff like that. Um, We have conversations like that a, a, a lot about those things and I won't get into my specifics, but a lot of, a lot of the brothers say that, you know, that, that that's the case. Even when, you know, um, prejudging, everybody tends to prejudge on some some level. And, you know, some of the brothers have said to me, you know, um, I, I just don't know what what they want, black women want. You know, if I'm dressed and clean cut, they think I'm soft. If I look like a thug then I'm too I'm too thugged out they don't want that if I and and I think the um the what you mentioned in regards to education um there are a lot of opportunities to get an education I do think that you know some form of training I would say is important mm-hmm. but like you said not everybody's going to get a degree and then at the same time I do believe that uh a you want to i would want someone um to be bringing something to the table financially working at least right um if you're able body you're not you know disabled or anything um and certainly and the other thing is you know coming to the table if you uh you know you're either trying to improve your credit and you're standing or you have good credit. I mean, these are the things that I think both men, black women, men and women kind of look at, especially if, if they're in that position. But does that mean from those stats that you said, Dr. Trey, that um, is it hard for say an educated, well-off black woman to even give an opportunity or come into the same circles of a black man who is the opposite. And, you know, same thing with a black man, black man who's well off and um, educated, trying to date and be in a relationship and have a long lasting relationship with a woman that is not of those same areas. Well, you know, I, I think you have to, to look at at the expectations for both sexes, right? You know, typically the saying goes, a man is only as good as what he can provide. That rings very, very true. You know, I noticed a a significant change in the kind of relationships I had when I was broke and studying my MBA and my undergraduate (laughs) versus when I was actually having a salary job, right? There was a significant change with my dating opportunities, right? But that same mentality is not given to women. You will never hear anyone say a woman's value is only as good as what she can provide financially. You know, for most men, a woman's value is how she can support him, right? How they can grow together. 
you know, we're biologically wired to want and need certain things. Even though we're all about equality these days, we still can't ignore, you know, what we're biologically required to want. Men have been the hunter and gatherer since the beginning of time, literally hunting bison as cavemen. Do you see where we're coming from? So, you know, when we talk about if you are a significantly successful black man, when it comes to getting a woman, you're going to have a much easier task as opposed to if you are a significantly successful black woman and you're trying to get a man, because a lot of men are intimidated. Let's take away black women in general by significantly successful women, because most women who are very successful in the corporate world, they've had to embrace masculine energy to get there because the American corporate workforce and the Western corporate workforce is still very male dominated and very male gendered, which means if you're a woman and you want to climb the ladder, you need to embrace those masculine traits. I would like it to change, but that's the situation we're in right now. Therefore, if a woman is a VP or a CEO or anything like that, typically she has masculine traits. And most men don't really want to date that. Some base males. But but also, isn't it... It, isn't it? You talked about DNA, and I mean to cut you off, Dr. Trey, but DNA with the men who, is it just intimidation or is it a man prejudging that successful black woman saying, oh, she ain't going to want to do it. She got every letter on, on after her name, the PhD and all that. She, she's not going to want to work with me. I'm a construction worker, whatever case, no disrespect to them, but is it not just intimidation, but is also prejudging that the fact that, you know, why would she want to even deal with me? Is that insecurity? Yeah, I, I would definitely say it, it's 50-50. I'd say it's one, you know, men definitely have a bit of insecurity, you know, with masculine women. And two, you know, they feel like, well, you know, I've been a bus driver for the past 10 years. You know, I, I just, don't think there's anything that I can do about this, you know, or they could say, well, you know, she's so educated and so intelligent. There's no way she would even give me a shot. So I I think a solution for that is, you know, if we want to boost marriage rates uh, amongst black people, you know, we should really focus on uh, improving job opportunities and education, particularly Mm. for black men. Um, You know, black women are winning right now and, and I'm for it they're winning significantly more than black men. Um, you know, I, I was reading an article that is according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, they were saying that 18.4% of black men were jobless compared to 9.6% of white men. Now we're not going to get into, you know, the historical atrocities of systematic racism, right? Because we know why we're here fine. But at the same time, you know, there are still significant racial disparities that persist. I mean, end of March, you know, I was laid off by my job due to COVID. And it took me about two and a half months to get back into work, whereas I had a Caucasian counterpart where it took him a month. Now, I'm not going to get into the specifics. It could have been, you know, maybe he had better context and connections that, that, that I did than I did. But my point we know what we know what it is, Doctor Trey. We we know what it is, Doctor <laughs> Table. Go ahead. We know. Come on. We know what it is. <laughs> but, but yeah. But but what I'm saying is, you know, we need to give black men more opportunities to to thrive. You know, we need to allow the patterns that we've seen before to be changed. And you know, black women they they got to give us a shot. You know, they got to realize that we're still struggling. You know, we're still seen as 
a certain element in society and and we need to be accepting of all people regardless of educational financial status right and you know i i will say this too to to your point about uh, uh black women um some of the most educated over the last few decades they're much more aggressive than men black men right they and and we tend to want to grunt it out you know historically if you will We'll, we'll work that nine to five. They want more. They're more tentative. They 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 work as hard statistically, harder as you mentioned. Um, so there, there's those things. I want to get to a a question that came in, and got a lot of people actually sending in questions. Uh, Kimberly uh, said that she wants that traditional uh, black man, that black husband, that is, you know, um, steep in godly values that's that's what she wants and and that was her question you can address that but just to to add on to that um what about even if you want the godly values but you know again let's live in a real world you're not going to get the perfect person The, the the last perfect person we know you know walked on water and is supposed to be coming back if you believe in and and the book but but the thing is that if if you can get 80% of what you want and deal with the 20% you don't get you know the 80 20 rule isn't that enough and 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 one would think that the godly principles would probably be built into that anyway yeah and you know it's i want to touch on the first question then I'm going to touch on the second one so you know if you want to find a a godly man who you feel like embraces you know the key attributes of you know a a man right in a relationship and marriage then you need to go to the places where you can traditionally find them and that's not going to be the club that's not going to be the bar now I'm not saying that you know I'm sure there's a preacher that's gone to a good bar in his time right or something but I'm talking about those people that are in the same club Every week, the same bars every week on a Saturday night. I very much doubt that the guy's going to be coming out of some club at 3 a.m. and making sure he can wake up at 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. to go to his Sunday service, right? So Mm. if you want to find a God-fearing man, you need to go to the places where God-fearing men are going to be. For example, look at your local chamber of black commerce, okay? Look at your local church gathering. Look at your reach-out events. Look at events you know, charity events, you know, where good black men are generally going to be. Because black men who don't care about that sort of stuff, they ain't going to be there. You know, they ain't going to be no, if, if, if there's a black man who, who's not a god for a man, he's not going to be going to no reach-out event. He's not going to be feeding the homeless. He's not going to be going to no march <laughs> or protest. You see what I'm saying? Like, you need to go to the places where you can find good men, okay? And I always tell right. people it's not going to be the bar or the club. It might be a dating app. But you need to be specific and strategic when you do that. I, you know, if I'm a woman and I'm looking for a God-fearing man, I'm not going to be swiping on a guy who's topless. That guy's not God-fearing man. The only thing he's fearing is that he's going to get a belly and he's going to lose his six-pack. So, yeah. Let me ask you, let me just play advocate with you, Dr. Trey. Let me ask you, uh, uh, play play advocate, I should say, not devil's advocate, but advocate. But some people would say, well, you still see – you know, the wolves in sheep's clothing at the church, at these uh, protests, at these other events. So, you know, again, maybe it's a smaller portion 
than if you go to the club, but maybe you still find those people. In other words, you know, it, it maybe comes into your 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 innermost sense, your spiritual sense, as some people say, Holy Spirit, some people say, that did you kind of figure it out and did, did discern things, but how do you figure it out? Because, if it, you know, we, we know stories of pastors that have fallen short and had oh, wives yeah. and embezzled money and things of that nature, too. So, you know, as soon as we're talking about God-fearing men, I, I'm going to by, – by their fruits, you may know them, okay? Which mm. basically is saying that actions speak far louder than words, you know? And right. I always say to women, look, if you're trying to get to know if a guy's God-fearing, you know, and I'm going to get quite raw here, think about the sexual component of things, okay? I believe that if a man – is willing to wait. Now, I'm not talking about waiting until marriage. I'm not that old school. I'm old school, but I ain't that old school, okay? I'm not, if you want to wait until marriage, <laughs> you know, by all means, but I'm not looking to, I, I would never do that. I think that's madness. You know what I'm saying? But, for example, I was once in a situation where I was dating someone and we didn't have sex for two months because, you know, that was important to her, right? And I was like, all right, that's, that's kind of important to me as well. I could do it in three weeks, but if you want to do two months, it's fine by me. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, I was willing to wait because I was, you know, confounded by her beliefs, and I, I believed in it, but she wanted to take it there. I wanted to take it there, right? And you're going to find men that are significantly better than me that, like, yeah, let's, let's just date and, and give it a couple of months till we share that moment, right? If the guy says he's God-fearing, and then it's the second date, and he's like, yo, come over to the house. Like, you know, let's get it on. Then that guy's not got food. He's playing around. He's playing around, okay? You you know, women, in fact, are far more discerning than men because they've had to deal with yeah. it from 16 and upwards. You know, women get specifically attractive women. They get harassed all the time. You get, I mean, I remember once I was uh, at the gas station, you know, my girl was in the car and then she got out because it was too hot and she was on her phone. I walk out the gas station, there's some guy trying to run up on her. He's just trying to talk to her. I said, hey, we got over here. He's like, oh, sorry, man. Is this you? I said, yeah, this is me. So my point <laughs> being is that women, <laughs> you know, women get har- har- harassed and guys trying to pick them up, you know, on a daily basis. So they know a good man that's in front of them. And if they don't, then they need to start looking back at the mistakes they've made with men before. I'll give you another example. Okay, for me. So... I know that if I'm texting someone and, you know, she's not that good at texting, she responds the next day, that's typically not a good sign. She's just going to waste my time. She's dealing with other guys. She's not that interested. I know that by historical data throughout my relationship life. If you're a woman, you know the certain things that you have done in your past and the result hasn't ended in your favor, stop doing that thing in the past. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. Mm. That's real talk, I, and uh, I like <laughs> what you said. <laughs> the, the guy was hollering at your girl. That was uh, that was funny, you know. Um, and 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 you know, I mean, we're we're men. You know, the wind blows and we get excited. I mean, let's just be let's be real <laughs> about that. I mean, I mean, really, you know, you know that that's that's yeah, really uh, we we are. Um, but it, it's it's important though too, just to to. Look at the other side, um, because what about the men 
who I well let me backtrack, uh, Doctor Trey. I think that I think you agree that just like parenting, society looks at uh, the woman in a better light than the man. Now the man has caused that a lot, abandonment, you know, cheating and things of that nature. But there are some good men out there, right? In terms of being good fathers, you know, and being good men. Um, those who really want something. But I think society um paints this picture and maybe some women buy into that um you know, he, you know, I got dogs, so the next one's going to be a dog. Or, um, you know, men don't hurt. We hurt. Men just move on. We don't hurt. We never get our, bro- our hearts broken or anything like that. Um, well, I won't get into my personal stuff, but th- those things do happen. What, what about that side of things? So you're saying what about the side of things where men – Essentially, when it comes to court, they they're seen as like uh, you're saying that they're seen as like uh, we are the aggressors in the situation. I'm, I'm saying that um, society and some women, black women, look at men as uh, you know that they they don't hurt or they all don't take care of their, their kids or. You know, all the negatives that society mainstream tries to put on black men that is really just uh, a stereotype because this you can never say all anyway. But, I, I mean, I'll go personal. No, I know I'm a good father, period. So, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. And there's a lot of good fathers out there. And also the fact that we do get into loving, monogamous relationships and we do get hurt. We get burned by a woman, like you said, that don't she don't text back the next day till the next day. You know she's not about anything. Like women can have can date a bunch of men and they're weighing their options. Men date a lot of women and their dogs, right, which a hundred percent is true. And and that you know by by nature uh, a lot of women are, are high pragmatists, right? And and that's how a lot of them are wired. Not all of them, but some of them in the sense that you know, they want the best of the best because as men, we are the choosers. We are the pursuers. We are seen as dogs because, you know, we are trying to find the perfect match. But what people don't understand is that there's a difference between a man and a woman. Now, when a woman has multiple guys that she's interested in, you know, it's different because, you know, you could walk, if a woman walked down the street right now, she, you know, she's wearing a revealing top, you know what I mean? She's looking good, you know, tight hugging, figure hugging dress, and she said to a guy, hey, look, I just broke up with my boyfriend. Do you want to have sex? I don't know any man that would say no, or at least say it, not now, okay. but maybe like in a couple of hours, right, if he was busy. There right. isn't really a man that would say no. Me, personally, I'd say no just because, like, it's too easy. There's something wrong in the hood. I'm going to get jumped around the corner or something, right? But for the most part, most men are going to say yes. If a man walks up to a woman and says that, the police are going to run upon him. He's going to get slapped. She might be carrying if she has a concealed carry. Like, it's over for that guy if he just walks up to a girl and says, let's have sex. So the double standard is, is getting worse and worse because misandry is, is increasing, you know, hatred towards men. We, we've just discovered in the last five years of the Me Too mo- mo- movement that there are a lot of men who have been abusing their power and authority to abuse women, which, you know, I don't condone. I think it's disgusting, and I think those men 
deserve their just desserts. However, because of that, we dealt with overcorrection. And what that meant when I say overcorrection is that men who were just, you know, doing things like trying to pick up a woman at a bar or something, you know, other people would say, oh, that's harassment because we're trying to overcorrect the issue that has been happening for, for so many years. And there's always been that double standard because women have always been painted as the damsels in distress, you know, the women who, who are very delicate and, and you can't hurt their feelings, whereas men were always portrayed as we're just dudes running up on any girl and we're just trying to hook up with women and have sex and, and leave. But in reality, the tables have never been closer than they ever have before. As a man, I know if this woman is worth her salt, if she's as attractive as I think she is, she's definitely going to have two to four guys that she is talking to the same time she's dating me. And you know how it is as, mm. well as a man. You know when you're rising to the top. You know when you're the number one guy. You know when she's not seeing any other guy before you. But in those beginning stages, she's definitely talking to other men. But for us, it's expected for us to just be like, okay, I'm only focusing on you. Like, it's a very terrible, terrible double standard that needs to change. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree. And, and I, I wanted to throw the emphasis on, too, you know, the, the motherhood and the fatherhood. And um, and going back there, I did a, get I got a comment from someone who said um, they don't, the man doesn't have to be perfect. You get a lot of women comments, uh, the man doesn't have to be perfect, but he, he will be perfect for her, and they're perfect together, which I think is, is profound. Um, but what about upbringings? We didn't get a chance, and folks, if you're just joining us, we're talking with uh, Trey H. Hennis, a.k.a. Dr. Trey. He's a licensed relationship therapist here on the Bachelor News Radio Show. If you're on the line, you have a question, I may uh, – Q, go in the queue and ask you if you have a question for our guest before he goes. And I see people on the line. So if, if you get silenced, that me, means I'm on the queue. I'm trying to ask you if you have a question for the guests um, that you want to, to, to relate to. And I see a lot of people on the line. Um, but, but, Doc, what about upbringings? Because let's say whether you're married or not, we already talked about the statistics there um with black women and and black men and maybe next week we get you on we'll, we'll talk about interracial which is a whole different thing that probably uh get people riled up but <laughs> if you if you're a, whether let's just say hypothetically you're a black woman and you grew up with two parents and you're a black man and you grew up with one parent or no parents and you're trying mm-hmm. to connect and there's some different there's some different experiences there. You know, mm. Naughty by Nature said, if you've never been to the ghetto, stay the bleep out of the ghetto. If you never had those experiences, then sometimes it's hard to relate. But, it, you know, no, but you know what right and wrong is. So what about those upbringings, if, if they have different upbringings? I, my sister raised me. God love her. Her birthday, big shout out to her, her birthday coming up Sunday. But my mother died when I was 11. My father wasn't around. I think I turned out okay. So I'm even in a different category. But what about those who had two parents as opposed to one parent or foster care or no parents when they try to come together? Does that play a part into it, the upbringing? Yeah, so, you know, Upbringing is is huge. It's very, very huge. You know, I remember where I was in a situation where 
I dated a woman who was incredibly affluent. Her, her parent, her dad was literally a millionaire. You know, I think he was worth like 20 million or something like that. I looked him up online and I, I got a little bit intimidated. But it was just, you know, that was a source of contention where we didn't even think it would be because for a lot of issues that I was going through, she just couldn't understand. I remember I had just graduated from my MBA and I was struggling to find work and you know, she was just like, ah, oh, you'll find something. Like, it's not that big of a deal. I was like, it is that big of a deal. Like, I literally paid for this out of my own pocket. Like, you know, your parents paid for your school. They didn't pay for mine, right? And that was just one of the very different arguments that we had because, you know, she had different mentalities on money and how money should be used and how disposable money was. So your upbringing, you know, how you've been raised is just critical. I think what we're failing to understand with, you know, black love right now is that it's changed. You see, back in the day, if you're in the 60s or 70s, you know, for the most part, you two would probably have the same sort of family with financial status, right, I want to say. But now we're living in a completely different generation, whereas a black man or black woman, you could come from a well-to-do mom and dad who was making 100 grand plus per year, and then, you know, he or she could run up on someone where they're dating someone who just had one dad or one mom that, you know, they weren't broke, but they were working class. They rarely saw their parents because they were always working overtime. You know, they scrimped and saved to go to college. Maybe they just got like a diploma and these two are meeting and they think it should work out because we're both flat. But in reality, values and how you brought up are everything. And hell, you could have, you know, two black people who were raised up in a fairly affluent background, but one of them, their family is completely atheist, and the other one's religious. It doesn't mean black love is going to survive that. It could, but it just, it just takes extra work. So we're dealing with so many different ends of the spectrum when it comes to black love right now that you have to remember with any relationship, one of the key things that's always going to hold you together is respect and values. If you don't share the right. same values, you're going to lose respect. And if you don't have respect, you're never going to have love, period. Mm, amen to that. And, and to the to your point, uh, Dr. Trey, um, uh, upbringings, especially when it comes to affluent or even middle class to poor. We grew up in the projects. We weren't gangster, but we were poor. So I, I, I've experienced the gun to my head by, by uh, somebody trying to rob me or a cop in this climate, you know, police shootings and things of that nature. So I am going to be absolutely engaged in protesting and for social injustices and, and equality and those things. And, uh, you know, black women may have never experienced that, maybe never experienced that. So, you know, she, she grew up and all her friends were, it was a, a rainbow and, she never heard the N-word. She never had to go through those things. So when we come together, then there's some differences. And then I'm the militant black guy, and and they can't relate. So so even with that, I would think uh, not just the upbringing of the values, Doc, but the environment, what you believe, what you've experienced, what you understand. You know, we didn't trust the beliefs. That might have been something different for somebody else. So speak to that real quick. I mean, even with the upbringings of the neighborhoods, if if you can't connect there, then it is going to have to take some respect, some trust, and some understanding. 
Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I completely concur with you. You know, even though I'm from London, you know, what people don't realize is that there are some ghettos of London, so to speak. And, <laughs> you know, uh, despite that, though, when I, when I first came to America, you know, the, the second person I ever started dating, you know, she was African-American. And, you know, she was talking and she, she dropped the N-word a few times. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Uh, that's a bit commonplace over here, huh? Right. And, and then we kind of got into a discussion. I said, you know, you can't be hating on your own people. And she was like, well, no, that's just how we refer to each other. I'm like, well, that's disgusting. How could you call him that? That's racist. <laughs> right. And, right. You know, she explained to me the reason why it happens here is because we're owning the word. We're taking it back. You know, we it's ours now. You know, people try to use it as a, a racial jab at us. But now we're taking it back. That's why we refer to each other that way. And I was like, oh, Oh, okay, right, and and that whole thing was resolved, but not other black couples. It, it's not that easy, right? Because sometimes, and this has happened to me a few times, I once dated a black lady who was adopted by a Caucasian family, and me and her, we broke up because it was around, uh, I think it was 2014. Tamir Rice, right, the 14 year old kid, smoked right. by the police. Rest in peace, yeah. Tamir Rice. And she just said, "Well, you know." Yeah, all lives matter, and if he wasn't there in the first place, you know, if he wasn't waving around a toy gun, then they would never have done that in the first place, and I'm like, I cannot believe that you're saying this. I cannot believe that you're saying this, right? Um, and you have some people that are like that, you know, and I'm not going to get into any words of what I would call that person, but, you know, it doesn't always work because you have different values. Values matter for everything. How you're raised right. always matters. Right. Uh, I had a one final one that uh, someone said that um, um, I just want to make sure I, I, I got the quote uh, correctly uh, that said that um, you can only appreciate something more as when you do the work yourself gives you a sense of pride. And uh, again, uh, good comment there. Dr. Trey, uh, listen, I, I, we have to talk off air, so I want to make sure we get you on and we continue this this series and, and um, certainly um, delve in. I, when we have you on again, I want to talk about black love as it relates to the, the other side, self-hate, and why do we hate our own skin, and, and are we buying into what society uh, portrays us as. But before you go, I want people to know how they can reach out to you, your social media, your website, how they can, um, um, you know, uh, obtain your, your services. Yeah, for sure. Um, you can go to my website, thefirstdatefix.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at thefirstdatefix. You can follow me on Twitter, thefirstdatefix, and you can go on my YouTube at thefirstdatefix. I upload two videos two videos weekly on YouTube and Instagram. I post every day for daily advice and tips. I also do a free consultation if you would like your online dating app uh, profile to be maximized, and I guarantee you that I will get you at least one day a week if you allow me to maximize your online dating profile. Well, I, I tell you, 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 you're a very impressive young man. Cambridge, Cambridge, you know, in London, that's the Yale of, of the United States. So, I mean, 
anybody's not impressed yeah. with that, then I don't know. Um, I don't know what they would be. Dr. Trey, I'm going to uh, hit you up uh, off air. Thank you so much. God bless. Be safe. And I'll talk with you next week, sir. All right. God bless, brother. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the show. We thank you for joining us. Don't forget, if you miss any part of the broadcast, you can go to our website, check the rebroadcast out at thebachelornewsradionetwork.com. T-H-E, Bachelor with a T, thebachelornewsradionetwork.com. Go to my guest. He is an adjunct professor of legislative politics, specifically religion and politics at George Washington University Graduate School. Also a reverend, uh, of course, uh, back on the show, we appreciate him. He is Professor Quadrico Bernard Driscoll. And, Professor, I appreciate you coming on. As always, I hope all is well with you, sir. Happy MLK Day to you, LL, and to your listeners. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, so you wrote a, a very good piece on um, Reverend Warnock's uh his victory, but of course the the uh, ordeals and it's the the things that he's gone through since he won um, the runoff as a, a senator in Georgia. People don't know Reverend Warnock, of course, the uh, Democrat in Georgia who won. He beat his Republican uh, a rival, and now he's one of two uh, Democratic senators. Um, which thank you to them, uh, help the Democrats. If you're a Democrat. Um, that basically have the uh, majority in the Senate because obviously President, uh, Vice President-elect Harris will be the tiebreaker, so it is goals in the favor of the Democrats. But your, your article was uh, what the attacks on Raphael Warnock's faith reveal about Christian nationalism. And I thought it was spot on. Uh, this is a man who took over Ebenezer Baptist Church, famed of the, 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 the Church of Reverend Dr. King on Dr. King Day, um, been very consistent in terms of his social injustice platform from a Christian perspective, right? But, you know, the, the, the scripture tells us to speak out about injustices, right? That's part of it. And he did that in a Christian way. But two things about your article I thought was re- really well written. You talk about how Republicans um, – have have this sense of or, or this entitlement of the moral authority, but filled with hypocrisy. Because if they have the moral authority, these are the same Republicans that criticized his opponent, criticized him as you know being tied to Reverend uh, Jeremiah Wright, of course, who of course uh, people were critical of former President Obama in that regard as his pastor and that that type of thing. But also, these are the same white Christians, let's keep it real, um, that support number 45. So you can support a guy who says only Jews can count my money, who I I can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away. I can grab a woman by the private parts. Um, I can, uh, you know, the, the Central Park Five need to get, you know, executed. This is the same guy that you supported. In the name of God, I guess. I don't know what God it is, but talk about that, how it's, it's so hypocritical of them trying to have this moral authority. And I guess they left the morals at the door. Meanwhile, this man is standing for truth and justice and doing it the right way. Uh, 
LA, I think you have summarized the article pretty well. Um, so, I, you know, essentially, I reflect on the election of uh, Georgia Senator-elect Raphael Warnock, right, and the, the Capitol insurrection that took place January 6th and the deep divisions within the American Christian community and the, those events of what it has exposed under the umbrella of Christian nationalism, which is the heart of what, what you are referring to and talking about. So the hypocrisy that you are mentioning with regard to the Republicans uh, have always, quite frankly, been there. It, it started with those who were uh, slave owners and slave masters, but yet Christians, right, which we knew was a hypocrisy. We knew, of course, that um, that's a direct opposition to what it means to be a Christian. But more formally, uh, the Republican Party claimed to be the party of the faithful through the identification of the religious right, which started with the moral majority. Names like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robinson, and which started in the late 60s, right? So you had Vietnam, you had the civil rights movement, you had the sexual revolution. That's taking place in the background. But yet there are these uh, Midwestern, Southern, typically middle-class folk who are starting this moral maturity. Um, and we know, again, we, I called some of those names. And so their belief was that this country needed to shift its values, and they packaged such those values in non-religious terms and started to focus more on the social issues, and thus they gained power. Those are the same people um, that were a part and of the Tea Party. Uh, that we saw, of course, at the end of Bush's term going into Obama's term, and it's the same people that we saw January 6th uh, during the Capitol insurrection. They haven't gone anywhere. It's just the manifestation. And I, and I chose to, to focus on the nuances with regard to white fragility, white immunity, white supremacy, whatever we want to call it, um, the election, of course, of Warnock being the first African-American senator from the state of Georgia, from the South particularly, and this encasing this, of course, in this idea that to be a true American and to be a true Christian means that one has to be white and typically male and, and Christian and that the rest of us should just be grateful for having lived in this country. But then what does that mean when we live in a country that, is, per the Constitution, right, that allows freedom of religion, and where Christianity specifically is used as sort of a civil religion, right? We know, and what I mean by civil religion, it is this term that a sociologist came up with where we use these semi-religious tools and symbols as a way, particularly with the Abrahamic faith traditions, as a way of healing the country through difficult times. You know, every president has, has done that. But, of course, we see 45 using Christianity as a weapon and to empower his supporters, right? Uh, and so th I, I, ch I choose or chose to talk about all of that, and this is, again, under the umbrella of Christian nationalism, which is dangerous. And, of course, the Republican Party has unfortunately, uh, again, starting from a more organized political perspective from the late 1960s up until now, 
using it as a weapon. And this is also precisely why we saw 45 Trump remove peaceful protesters from Lafayette Square in June of last year to hold up a Bible, right? So unlike other presidents who have used these Christian symbols as means to bring the country together, regardless of whatever faith tradition most Americans are, Trump used it to endorse Christian nationalism, which again is this uh, very oppressive way of weeding out other people who are not white and Christian. You know, uh, Professor, when you you it's funny you used to say that. And oh, by the way, he was at Lafayette Square um, with the Bible upside down. I mean, this is the same guy who said two Corinthians. I mean, and thought it was cool and thought he was like doing something and saying something. He he, he didn't even know how to, to, to quote the scripture. But anyway, I digress. Uh, but you know, you mentioned in your article, I thought it was very good that you talk about how you know. It, 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 you know, Amy Barrett, Judge uh, Amy Barrett is on the uh, Supreme Court, um, you know, was it was like hands off with her. She's this Christian leader. And how dare you, you know, come after her with her Catholic faith and how, you know, she stands on her values and belief. But the black reverend, I guess, is just this crazy black dude is just I guess my point is, is that it, it, it still comes down to race. When you look at Amy Barrett, she's this, you know, soccer mom, nice Catholic woman, and, you know, pure as snow. And this guy is just this radical black guy just trying to radical, you know, is just trying to get the, the, get the, the, the natives, the blacks, all, all riled up. And he's really not about anything. He can't be a man of faith. He can't be a man of God because he's black and we black and, and we just want our way. I mean, it just seems like... That hypocrisy is right there. That even our even our black leadership is not deemed as uh, on the same level when it comes to white Christians and that whole um, uh, Christianity when it comes to Christian nationalism. For me, which means uh, the way in the, in the way that you per- portrayed it in, in your article, that typically means white Christians. Right, right. I mean, so what we saw during during the Supreme Court hearing with Amy Coney Barrett, who is now Justice Barrett, I suppose, was Democrats by and large, the Senate Democrats. It was hands off about talking about her very conservative right wing Christian faith. Right. It, right. I mean, they absolutely didn't mention it, and and, and it wasn't just that it was a right-wing Christians. It was kind of extreme, right, uh, to, an, to an extent. But yet, and again, I mentioned this in the article, uh, it was somehow fair game to attack Warnock and his faith tradition, as it, of course, was to attack uh, uh, Jeremiah Wright, who we know, of course, famously is or was Obama's pastor. And then, of course, lumped in James Cone, who is the uh, father of black liberation theology, and and other uh, preachers, Calvin Otis Butts, who is now the current pastor, of course, at the Sydney Baptist Church. And quite frankly, this is King. These are the same people, the lineage, right, a new generation that attacked Martin Luther King Jr., uh, because what we have to understand, and you said it boils down to race. Well, of course it boils down to race. 
right? Recall the, it's an old photo, and it's a picture of the Ku Klux Klan, and they're in a church, and right above it, it says, Jesus saves. So, again, this goes all the way back, quite frankly, to the days of when Africans arrived to this country, and we were forced, quite frankly, with Christianity down our throat, although we always had a belief, of course, in God. And, it, and, and, it, and from, from our oppression came, in, in many respects, uh, black liberation theology and the social gospel movement, which, gave the, uh, which, which provided the spiritual underpinnings for the civil rights movement. And King was rooted in such tradition. Raphael Warnock is rooted in such tradition. I'm rooted in such tradition. And that is the prophetic tradition that African, most African Americans, I should say, or I should, I would, some, not most, some African Americans are rooted in. And it, and it started with a, a pastor in Augusta, Georgia, William Jefferson White. Uh, who who is is somehow credited with that social gospel movement who put the word of God, so to speak, as we say in the church, into practice, ensuring that Jesus came for the oppressed, Jesus himself being an African-Palestinian Jew to set the captives Mm. free, right? So we, we know this, but again... In the night, in the in a more politic, more politicized, organized, formally in the '60s against these white Christian conservatives, and Trump is a means to an end. This is why they are able to ignore his grabbing of women's vaginas. This is why they are able to ignore his his bastardization of scripture because he's a means to an end. He serves their purpose. And he serves their purpose, of course, by putting an Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court. You know, I just need you to say, uh, Jesus was who? I just need you to repeat that. <laughs> that Jesus is and was an African Palestinian Jew. Okay, I just need you to repeat that for the audience, uh, uh, folks. And that's a whole different deep conversation, uh, Professor. Uh, We we have to get you on to talk about it again. And, you know, they, you know, Scripture says, you know, you know them by their fruit, right? So, you know, uh, the fruit of of these people and how they, they, this, this Christian imperialism that's taking place that was forced upon us. Like you said, we believe we, we have our relationship with, with our God, with Christ. You know, and the Christianity part is a whole different thing. But anyway, I want to read this real quick because I know you only got a lot of time. But part of your article, you said the black tradition of the social gospel equipped uh, civil rights leaders with much of their movement's intellectual underpinning. Essentially, to attack Warnock as radical is to attack square on the legacy of Dr. King. Very good point. Like Warnock, he believed that racism, sexism, materialism, I mean, militarism, Poverty, classism were deeply ingrained inequities uh, that long have threatened America's democratic ideals. Whenever religious figures speak in the prophetic tradition that critiques American imperialism and exceptionalism, they are vilified as anti-American. You talk about tropes going on. Should we even be surprised with this? And and the, the second part of it is, 
you know, we we not just are as our 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 black pastors like yourself, our reverends, we are supposed to be preaching love and you know, um love, 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 love and love, 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 love. <laughs> not justice, not equality, none of that thing. It's almost like we again, we have to be we have to acquiesce, we have to be non threatening and they won't, God forbid, something happens to this man that he serves for a long time as a senator. When he moves on and goes home, he, you know, they'll appreciate him then, just like in, like you said, in the lines of Dr. King. Now they want to do that. I have a dream speech. They don't want to talk about the speech he talked about, you know, the danger of a moderate white. So, or, um, you know, when he called out the, the uh, rabbis and others from, from his uh, his jail cell, and when he talked about Vietnam and talked against that, they don't want to talk about that part. They want to do the kumbaya part. Right. Look, um, there, there are two things, and and, and again, I, don't, I didn't come on in my role as as a as a pastor as a preacher, but Luke four eighteen says, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor." Right to heal the brokenhearted and to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of slight sight, excuse me, to the blind. And then Matthew goes on to articulate, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was sick, you gave me shelter. When I was, you know, naked, you clothed me. This is what is in scripture, and this is part of the social gospel movement is all about. So, and, and, and I think we also have to be very clear. In those two scriptures I just gave, that within itself is rooted in love. Because King called for us to be more of a love-oriented society and less of a thing-oriented society. And love, right, is a peace that is just as powerful as any weapon. So it is not this sort of kumbaya, sentimental-type feeling of love, but it is a radical love that shifts the power from those who are the oppressors to ensuring that the oppressed have access, that the oppressed have food, something to eat, something to drink, housing, shelters, and to set them ultimately free, as indicated in Scripture. And and that's that's essentially what it talks about. But you know, you you can't be radical. Uh, and you you talk about uh, uh, how that goes on. It, it if how would Doc King deal with a Republican Party with a a power structure with those? one percent that wants to keep down the other 99 percent i mean it, it feels like we're going towards apartheid you know what apartheid was i mean you 10 percent of the people running 90 percent of the, the darn country and it wasn't until that you know the, the the push forward and and where the world saw all of these atrocities that things changed and 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 you saw how um the white uh, establishment fought back so hard because a they didn't want to lose their power and b they probably said man the way we treated them they're going to get us bad and I think that's the same thing that's going on here they're afraid of losing their power and that would be right. those who are uh, the, that Christian establishment um, 
and they're afraid that what they've done to us is going to come back 10 times worse to them. So what would Dr. King, how would he handle this in this day and age? You know, I, I cannot pretend and know how Dr. King w- would handle this, right? He would be 91, I think, uh, you know. So what would a 91-year-old do? But, but what I can tell you is that we refuse in this country, right, we refuse to deal with his moral thought and his political philosophy in this contemporary moment. Because it's easy to deify a dead dreamer than to heed the words of a living prophet. And so mm. we, we encase him as this you know, innocuous, colorblind dreamer, as this, as this you know, proverbial tooth fairy of racial harmony. But we refuse to deal with the moral and political philosophy. And until we're able to actually – and you, you made a mention of this, of just referring to his I Have a Dream speech – but of ignoring all of his other sermons and speeches where he actually forces us to talk about this moment, to talk about a revolution of values. Even in his address uh, at the Riverside Church of going, I think it's beyond Vietnam, where he talked about shifting financial resources for, uh, from this sort of militarized prison industrial complex to the poor. Right, which is ultimately what led to his death. So we, we refuse to, to really read and listen to what he said. And so I think he would still be challenging the power structures of this country today right, with a radical love, shifting resources, shifting the, the narrative that we have been, of course, oppressed with for far too long. Time and time again, the black prophetic preaching tradition has called America to its better self. And we see that black people continue to call, black and other oppressed groups of people historically, continue to call America to be its better self. Because most whites in this moment do not have the wherewithal to ascertain and to try to figure out and understand what happened on January 6th, because as you indicated, too much of their humanity, too much of their identity is rooted in them maintaining power, and most are unconscious of it. Um, Bernice King, I saw a quote. She said, please don't act like uh, everyone like my father, that he was hated, Um, and he was isolated um, Mm -hmm. back then, especially when he did come out against Vietnam more, but it, I think she's making a point of like, you know, come on America, the same people who want to, you know, uh, adore him and talk about all that. I have a dream and want people to feel warm and fuzzy wanted him dead. And the same people, um, professor that, uh, talk about quality that he wanted and, and are quick to have their, you know, staffers find quotes to talk about it are trying to stop voter, you know, voters from uh, voting, voter suppression right. and uh, the, the inequalities in housing and jobs and, and, and schools, HBCUs underfunded and all of those things. The, the hypocrisy goes to the highest levels. And again, it goes, it's not just about 45 and it's not just about those who you pointed out eloquently in your article. It's about those who 
you know, they stroke us on the back and stab us at the same time. And that's what they did to Dr. King. And they certainly, just like Ali, now he's dead. He's not threatening. They want to reveal him and, and love him now. But when he was, when he said, no Vietcom, uh, call me nigger, they hated him then. But it's the same thing with Dr. King. Absolutely. He, he Muhammad Ali, and several others are now a part of the, the pantheon of American civic gods, right? We, we use them conveniently for our ideological talking points, and we take him and others out of the case when we need to, uh, to appeal to peace every time citizen protest exposes the hypocrisy of democracy, particularly for those who are living under the underside of the American empire. So absolutely, we, we continuously use King for our convenience and particularly every time citizens protest or when we call out to the hypocrisy of democracy. And I would also add a footnote that there were black churches and black pastors who were also equally against King because they, because they right. thought that King was moving too fast. He was doing too much. And given the conservative nature of now and, and historically of the black church, they too were equally critical of King. So, you're, so Bernice King is, of course, absolutely right. He was not this beloved dreamer when he was alive, right, which is why I right. said it is, it, is, it is easy to deify a dead dreamer than it is to heed the words when he was alive. That's right. Uh, Religion and Politics is the uh, website. What the attacks on uh, Raphael Warnock's faith reveal about Christian nationalism is the article. Uh, Professor Quadricus uh, Driscoll wrote it. Please do. We'll give that information out again where you can find it. Uh, Professor, uh, if you want to let people know how they can follow you, uh, other articles or anything else, please do let them know. I know you you, you got to get out of here. Sure, sure. You can follow me on Twitter, which is also where the article is housed at Q underscore Driscoll, D-R-I-S-K-E-L-L-4. That's Q underscore Driscoll 4. As always, Professor, I appreciate you coming on. Be well, and uh, I will talk with you very soon. Thank you for your time. Great. Thank you. Take good care.